Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCpod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Adi Pinar, who is the co-founder and CEO of Cogsy. So, Adi, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your personal background and then what you guys are building with Cogsy? Totally. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I uh, really appreciate it. So, um, my the sh- short version of my kind of resume and kind of what led me here is I was one of the original co-founders of WooCommerce. Um, stepped down as CEO there in 2013. WooCommerce sold to Automatic. In, in 2015, I then moved on. I founded a company initially called Receiptful, um, rebranded to Converger, which was email marketing automation for e-commerce brands. Um, by the time we sold to Campaign Monitor in 2019, we were primi- primarily serving Shopify merchants. So that's where I got my start in kind of getting more familiar with the Shopify ecosystem. Um, spent about a year with Campaign Monitor post acquisition, uh, and then I came back to an idea that I had years ago, which was to kind of go b- build something in the kind of inventory space. So today, I'm working on Cogsy, um, where we do inventory management for brands that sell sell multi-channel. Uh, and then beyond that, I um, I invest in the e-commerce sales space. Um, like really passionate. I'm, I'm very much a one-trick pony in that sense. I try to kind of you know, make sure that all my worlds have a significant overlap. Um, and then I have a, a young family. Um, I've got been happily married for, for 12 years um, and I've got three kids, 11 years, eight years, two boys. And then we recently added a little princess who is now uh, eight months old. 
And Aidy, where, where are you based for, for those who are listening? Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in Cape Town and I can say I'm kind of born and bred Cape Townian uh, as well. So so that's that's really interesting. How did you get into, um, you know, starting WooCommerce and getting into the e-com enablement space from Cape Town all the way back in the day? Why don't you walk us through that? What were some of the problems you're seeing and how did you how did you get the idea to, to get started? Yeah, so um, by the way, this is the first time that I've... Um, in answering this, like you, you're taking me way back there, kind of plain. So, the kind of the the answer is like, I think my journey into e-commerce was coincidental, i.e., not planned, right? Because uh, what happened before that is I got into the WordPress ecosystem, uh, and the kind of the precursor, the the catalyst for that was back in I think this was 2004, 2005, just as blogging was becoming a kind of a thing, I decided that. I needed a blog. So I was at university at the time um, and I ultimately stumbled onto kind of WordPress, figured that this looks like the easiest thing. I knew a little bit of HTML, CSS, taught myself enough PHP to be kind of to, to, to be dangerous. Uh, and I built my own blog. And then from there, kind of during, during varsity, I uh, did some consulting work on top of WordPress, um, as well as kind of the, in the way I would drive traffic or kind of your know, interest in my consulting services as a designer developer was by releasing free WordPress templates uh, at the time. And then kind of the from there, what essentially happened was um, I prioritized that to the extent that I started selling that. And that was the kind of the, the catalyst for WooThemes, which I co-founded with, with Magnus and Mark. Um, and this was like, I built the first product November 2007 to give everyone a timeline. And then from there, what effectively happened is we got into a category with our templates where we were serving other businesses. So like they would buy our templates for a typical kind of your brochure like websites. And they kept asking us, hey guys, like how do I add a shopping cart to this? And at the time, um, like there just wasn't, there, there were other plugins for WordPress available, but none of them could essentially meet our very high standards for what we would want to do on the design side of things. So we effectively kind of went, I think we went through three different projects to try and build this ourselves, um, outsource it, multiple configurations before we ultimately kind of, you um, you launched WooCommerce. So this was like a two year process, uh, you know, for us. And then WooCommerce completely changed our business within it within a year. So the the context there is that we were already doing multiple millions in revenue uh, by the time WooCommerce launched. We were a significant business. I think we were about 15, 16, 17 people on the team at the time. And then WooCommerce became 90% of our revenue within a single year thereafter. So that's like that's a long-winded answer just to um, and I hope what everyone hears here is oftentimes the idea or the project or the business that's really successful is not something that was perfectly planned to the nth degree from the start. Um, me getting into e-commerce and like being in e-commerce 15 years kind of you later or from WooCommerce like 11, 12 years later, there is definitely part coincidence in there that I that I can't claim credit for. No, and I think that's such an important point as an entrepreneur, right? Like you wanna be positioning yourself the right way. And it seems like you were building in the WordPress ecosystem. There was this need within the stuff you were building, you were serving all these different needs. And then all of a sudden, as this e-commerce wave started to emerge, you were able to take what you were building, spin out a specific practice within your business. And all of a sudden that became 
90% of the existing business that you're doing even bigger than your own business. And then you're like, okay, this is obviously my business is here. This is what's generating revenue. This is what to focus on. And I think for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's, it's really important about positioning yourself in different pockets where you're building, you're experimenting, you're seeing things, you're seeing waves kind of come along. And then you can see the, you can, you know, you can catch those massive lifts and they can turn into businesses themselves. Um, so so why don't you walk me through as as that wave started to take off as you were building in WooCommerce? What are some of the lessons? What, why don't you walk us through the journey there as you as you uncovered this specific niche for e-commerce within the WordPress ecosystem? What then? What started to happen? Yeah, so I think probably two things that I think are are interesting to call out there, Blaine, and you touched on part of that, um, you know, just before now is you know, for us like as soon as we released WooCommerce. It became, I would say our customer support was always a big part of why we succeeded with, you know, with, with WooThemes and then WooCommerce. But with WooCommerce, it became even more important. Um, so we really had to dial in, like, how we were learning from customers, right? Because these were actual merchants. We were kind of code monkeys at the time, Um Right, um, and I can say that because we were also early twenties, right? Like we, like we were, like it was monkey business to some extent. Um, so we really had to kind of dial in how we were, kind of you know, listening to customers, learning from them, um, and how we pro- were prioritizing things. I think that's, you know, one part at least as a founder, that um, I, I can acknowledge and kind of call out there. But then the the interesting thing in kind of you know, answering the question there, Blaine, is as we went through that, because we suddenly had. Kind of WooCommerce on day one was this really big kind of your canvas, but there was no kind of your you know, no pencils, you know, no markers, no paint, right? Like none of the other things that were built to actually kind of create a picture. So we soon and like what became the ultimate business model was for us to build out what we called extensions or add-ons. Um, in the Shopify world, they would be apps, right? Um, but we had to build out all of those things. And what was fascinating there is to try, like you, you start following businesses and you even kind of back then, businesses mostly decide how they want to operate and they want software to adapt kind of to that, right? They, they don't like for software to dictate, like this is how kind of a, a process should run, um, especially where there's physical things involved, like physical products that needs to f- be physically moved, right? It's humans doing the moving, et cetera. Like those kind of operational things um, like I don't think businesses like when software dictates what should happen there. So like in that journey of WooCommerce, like seeing how complex and sophisticated and how brands were and how quickly they ramped that up as soon as the software was was there, like that was fascinating, right? Um, and I think like the way that I now think about that and how it's played out in the kind of e-commerce um kind of your greater e-commerce journey is like back in WooCommerce, like along with Shopify, right? Like similar ages, they were, um, and this goes back to by the way with Toby, um, you know, Toby uh, is one of the founders for Shopify. Like before Shopify, most people don't know this. He um, worked on, and I think he was the lead contributor for an open source project within the Ruby Rails community called Active Merchant, which was a way to accept credit cards, right? So there's this very much like this first wave of e-commerce, which was all around just, hey, how do we get access, right? How do we not have to go through kind of, uh, you know, um, your merchant kind of application forms to you know, be able to create, you know, do credit card processing? How do we have the platforms to have a basic shopping cart? And then we went to the second phase, I think, in the last couple of years, which was all around kind of the marketing and sales stuff, um, like advertising, et cetera. Like how do we 
put customers in the, you know, into the top of the funnel and, and how do we kind of effectively kind of get more money from them. And I think we're now in a phase, for example, where we're back to that original complexity that WooCommerce you know, had to uh, kind of you know, figure out, which is operational matters are, again, you know, important. Like everything from kind of how do I manage my warehouse to how do I do inventory management to how do I do better accounting and calculate my, my actual profit. Like I think all of those things, like very tricky things, more business-specific things um, are highly prevalent again. Yeah, and I think another interesting part about like what we've seen a, bu uh, a bunch from just talking to brands and just as the landscape sort of evolves and why I think the timing is really interesting for the kind of stuff you're building, it's like as all these different waves kind of come along, you have the, the Shopify explosion, you have like really cheap marketing on Facebook, people are able to spin up brands, sell a bunch of products. Um, you're in an environment where, uh, you know, people are able to sell and they have such a big marketing arbitrage that they're able to just blast out all their products and they're not as focused on the operations. Yes, they have to have operations that work, but that's not where they're focusing to like recoup revenue and, and really make sure that their margins are airtight. Whereas now, um, you know, as ad, ad costs go up, all the marketers have, have figured out where to go. Um, and there's more and more brands that have popped up selling online. Now the game becomes a little bit tighter and these different areas like inventory management and like operations become so much more important to really get right, especially as you scale, because it's an exponential equation, right? So, um, so why don't you talk a little bit then about moving, I guess, into Cogsy and what you guys are building there? What was the, um, you know, what was the, the first things that you started to say, like, oh, there's a really big opportunity here to productize in a way that no one else is doing? What were the things that you were hearing from brands that uh, you know, they had problems with that weren't solved by software were, that convinced you that like, okay, here's, it's time to build here. And these, these are the problems areas that we should be focusing on. Yeah. So, uh, I probably did something there, Blaine, that I don't advocate, um, that first time founders do this, right? Because I think that there's a, there's a lot of risk involved. And to be honest, like TBC on whether, um, you know, this, the risk I took, and I'll explain what I mean with that, but the risk I took with Cogsy kind of you know, pays off. But the risk was I did zero customer development before we started building, right? So, like, I, from my side, uh, I put my kind of technologist hat on. And I said, firstly, I don't believe that there's been a lot of investment and a lot of innovation into anything that looks like kind of your back office Kind of your know, functions for retail brands. So again, like any, anything from you know, kind of you know, inventory to logistics um, to kind of your know, accounting related things, like anything that's you know, back office probably wasn't as sexy. Um, all the money went into kind of email and SMS marketing and marketing attribution, etc. So I figured that e-commerce, like I'm bullish on kind of your e-commerce and just broadly kind of digital commerce. Um, so what's the opportunity there? And I figured this was was Blue Ocean. And then I kind of, I think the a big part um, of the original thesis was that the kind of, because we started off thinking that we would be a traditional inventory management system, right? So like think um, TradeGecko that went to Intuit, right? Like is a, is a great example. Uh, and I looked at the space and I was like, hey, all of the incumbents here, like they just, they just don't excite me and I think I can do it better. Like, um, and part of kind of thinking or believing I could do it better was um, when I built the first product that became Woo, I was finishing up my, my honors degree in accounting and I was going to be a chartered accountant. So like I'm relatively adept at kind of you know, the, the financial and accounting side as well. So I just felt that kind of the incumbents weren't there either. 
But then when I did, um, and I think part of what we're still kind of trying to do is, and you know, to your point at least, there, there was some learning then eventually, which was most of kind of inventory management and planning still happens in spreadsheets. And I don't believe that that should, that is the optimal way for any brand to grow in 2022 and beyond. Right? I think that if if you're trying to say a spreadsheet is a really flexible user interface to do whatever you want, then perfect. Then nothing can beat that. But I just believe that kind of you know spreadsheets are just limited. Um, so for the Cogs at least is like we've spent a lot of time trying to not build a kind of inventory kind of management and planning tool that looks and functions like spreadsheets, but actually kind of gives the user something that feels like the sexy marketing tools that they're using, even though like on the kind of the back end, like we are doing the same sophisticated math that you could do in a kind of a, in, a, in, a, in a spreadsheet. Got it. And so what are you guys as Cogsy, like as you started to productize, right? I think that is really interesting when you said, you know, we we, we knew there was a problem here. This is the, the space that we wanted to build. And I think there's always like when you're doing product development, right? You can you can either talk to your customers and maybe go all the way down the right the path and maybe even build the wrong thing because sometimes customers don't actually know what they want. They'll tell you different problems. You'll build exactly what they say and Most then there the isn't a solution they there. Don't know what they want. <laughs> <laughs> or you can you can anticipate their needs, have that perspective and as a technologist build it for them. So it seems you you definitely like were able to latch onto that route, move fast. So what were some of those things um, you know, that you were able to productize that you were saying that are in the back office, what were like, where were those processes being done and what data sources and how were you actually being able to track it to come up with your numbers and generate that into a sexy, fun tool that, um, that anyone on the team could understand? Yeah. So I could probably kind of you know, answer the question and, um, in sharing the biggest learning that I've had and then or the biggest change of mind that I've had since kind of from inception of idea to to where we're at today and that's actually around kind of having brands and most i think this is true for most if not all brands is that they have a kind of decentralized and fragmented tech stack right so when i went into cogsy what we eventually like when we essentially kind of put the idea of a traditional inventory management system in place we said can we build some intelligence optimization layer and we start with forecasting the bond forecasting on top of kind of any data source where kind of there is SKU level data already, right? So an IMS or ERP is a perfect place. We would just build direct integrations and we would add value on top of that, value and workflows. What's been interesting is in that kind of your fragmented tech stack environment, um, we've seen that being much more prevalent versus the brands that have a kind of centralized source of truth in place. So what we're doing, for example, is like we become the source of truth without being the system of record for anything. What I mean with that is um, we often work with brands that they, they sell on um, Shopify direct. They shall sell on you know, Amazon FBA. So both those are sales channels as well as inventory locations. We integrate for them uh, into their 3PL, like a ShipBob, right? Because ShipBob has um, better, kind of, you know, more, more accurate inventory levels than what they track in Shopify for whatever reasons. And then we also integrate with like say uh, kind of an anvil which is a specialized purchasing you know platform so that we can understand the concept of of purchase orders and then effectively what we do there i mean that's a uh, we have more elaborate kind of examples where they have more channels um, and other tools in their tech stack but effectively what we do is we you know because of SKU is ultimately a unique identifier right so we can essentially take all of your product data and we can map all of these different kind of your sources 
and kind of your object to that commute data. So whether it's inventory level, whether it's an order attached to that SKU, whether it's an incoming purchase order, we can connect all of those things together to deliver a higher fidelity kind of your output. So when I say higher fidelity output at this stage, I, like we mostly try and do can you two things. One is around visibility, so fully giving you kind of your visibility across kind of you know everything that touches your inventory, right? That's the one part thereof. And then secondly, we have a kind of your, a big part of the product is around kind of your forecasting, demand planning, um, and being able to do kind of your proactive replenishment um, for at least for your best having SKUs. Got it. So, so basically what you're saying is you're able to connect all, all to all these data sources and then you're able to help the brands really understand what their levels are, what it means for them from a financial perspective, when to replenish, when not to. Because like, like I think one of the things that we had been talking about is like when a brand, if you're, if you're doing really well on the demand gen side and if your marketing doesn't line up with your product, you could be burning a whole bunch of money by spending on ads, driving traffic, and then not actually having the product to fulfill or vice versa. You're stocking too much product. You're paying for that. It's taking up your warehousing space. And meanwhile, people want other products. So it's, it's really about helping brands be able to have more knowledge and insight into be able to balance that delicate, uh, sort of balance, right? Exactly. So, um, where we're at today, for example, and I can share where we're going with this, is where we're at today, let's go back to that kind of you know, a simpler configuration for brands where, again, they sell direct on Shopify, they also sell on Amazon FBA. So what Cogsy can already do is we, essentially because we were combining those data sources, we can help you figure out what an optimal kind of purchase plan is for your kind of whole product catalog, say for the next 12 months, right? So we can help you plan out the kind of the cadence and the sizing of those purchase orders um, in future. And you can take that whole 12-month plan to your vendors and say, guys, please like help me on unit economics and make sure that you've got availability in in in, in the kind of factory on your side to meet these kind of your units in, in the next year. So we really do that. But then what we also do now is we help you understand, hey, if Shopify is your kind of you have a main warehouse attached to kind of Shopify, this is the cadence at which you need to replenish to Amazon to not sell out. And the thesis there is that you are like to optimally sell, you need to ensure that you've got inventory on both of those locations. And again, you can't just like no one has all the capital to make sure that you just stock millions of units in, in every single location. That's not it, right? So we try and help you figure out like that optimal inventory level for every location already. And crucially, where I think this is heading um, is we're going, and maybe this is part of just the evolution of commerce and you know, to your point earlier about brands having to level up their game and becoming more sophisticated. Maybe there's a case to be made that the kind of the current worldwide economic you know, climate or sentiment is, is adding to this. But I think profit is going to become more important. So the, the next things for us, at least from a product side, is um, you know, two things I can mention is, I, I think figuring out like how, like in a scarce environment, either in working capital or in inventory, which channel or which product should you prioritize? So an example, like two examples that I'll give you there is like one, we're very close to um, rolling out a, a, a new integration with Smarter, the subscription platform, where um, and we'll be exclusive to them initially, but we're effectively what we're doing is we're ingesting their kind of subscription data for their brands. And we're able to tell you if you are at risk of stocking out for a product that has subscriptions, this is the kind of the reserve level that you need for those subscriptions. Because our thesis here is, if you don't have stock to fulfill, I mean, this is we're talking consumer goods. So if you don't have stock to fulfill a renewal for a subscription, 
highly likely that that customer churns, right? So again, like we would rather give you that number and like, the essentially put you in the position proactively to make the decision and prioritize fulfilling your subscriptions and rather running out of kind of your new customers because the LTV um, or any kind of second order, you know, metric that you attach to that decision is higher. The simpler, kind of like that's something that's very prevalent. So I get very excited about that. It's also very unique. There's nothing like that in the ecosystem. But broadly, what that means is, again, like if you go back to, if I can only sell on Shopify or Amazon, because I can only get as much stock right now, whether it's my own working capital constraints, whether it's a supplier issue, which of these channels should I should I prioritize and to, to which extent? Like that's ultimately kind of, uh, or like one of the outcomes that we are kind of driving towards from a product perspective um, in, in the next year. Yeah, and I think that's really important too, because what, like in this current environment where capital is expensive uh, and you have all these different trade-offs to make, right? Number one, you want to, if you have a subscriptions order orders in place, like what you were talking earlier about making sure data is linked and everything, the fact that you, by tying subscription to inventory, it makes it really easy for you to say, Hey, I already have these sales coming. I should be ready for them because if I don't fulfill on them, that's going to be a churn. And that's not just a one-time churn like that the whole un unexpected uh, LTV of that customer is gone. So I think being able to solve that is, is crucial. And then as well as, you know, as you have more and more data, you're able to like build in all these different things to help these people understand, oh, which channel is going to be more profitable. If I have limited inventory, I don't have unlimited capital to stock up on everything. Should I, am I going to be more profitable by selling on on my Amazon channel, on my retail channel, on my direct channel, like where should I prioritize my inventory? So I think that's a really important way for brands to save and make and boost their um, boost their their unit economics for 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 what they're selling. The next question that I have is, given all these learnings, right? You you guys are clearly serving brands that are off, starting to move from maybe just ETC to multi-channel. They're launching the Amazon store. They're up, launching the retail. What are some of the learnings that you're seeing from brands as they graduate just from like one channel, as they start expanding? Like, what are some of the learnings that they need to have in mind as they go through this growing process on the like inventory and operation side of things? Again, like one of the most interesting learnings they're playing was that um, we're definitely seeing kind of your brands trying to sell in multiple channels much sooner, including retail, right? Like this probably one of the bigger surprises beyond like that fragmented tech stack. Like I always thought like you would need multiple millions of, of dollars to even think about selling into kind of your, um, like even like, like nationwide chains retail, right? So not just independent retailers. So that's definitely happening sooner. And I think again, like that's indicative of the times we're at. Like you made the point earlier, like in years gone by, you could just juice your Facebook machine and really optimize that. And you had your customers on tap, right? And you can scale. I think the best brands now, like they will scale by expanding into different kind of your channels. So like, I think that acknowledgement is already there. The key things that the brands that we work with that do this kind of your well is like, one is like totally un, you know, unrelated you know, to Cogsy, one is somewhat related. So the one that's unrelated is ultimately a new channel is always a bit of a gamble, right? Like you'd like, it's not like, I think as a software founder, I'm always very privileged in that like we can eat like relatively easily and with low risk run a test and test our hypothesis. For brands, you're talking about physical goods, you're probably talking minimum order quantities, selling into you know a channel, properly testing something. So, and again, like, if, if I commit 10,000 units into a channel and I can't get it back and I run out of stock for my direct channel, that's a challenge. So like the brands that do channel expansion well, they are really disciplined about that process and about kind of your both 
what the kind of your assessing the downside there like i if this goes south or something else happens like how do we mitigate against that right so really being thoughtful about that and acknowledging that like the first kind of your order or first sale into a new channel or the first steps into a channel like they are risky and like you need to you know kind of prove out hypothesis there and learn so i think that's the one you know part of it and then the second part is again like the brands that have like, do better there are the brands that have the i would say broadly say the tech stack in place before they do those things right so like many of these things like getting insights from your data is not something that you should try and do when your house is already on fire, right? When your house is on fire, th these are hard things to do, right? Um, you have to build trust in whatever reporting platform you have. You have to build the vocabulary oftentimes, right, if you're not familiar. So it's not just a case of then house on fire, like let's implement reporting suite um, and it will solve all of our problems. So <clears throat> like a key thing that I mentioned how Cogsy builds that visibility, for example, that's a, that's a key example there is like, how can we help you understand like before you go into that channel, a like how do you should think about your existing channels like right? how much inventory you need but then also as you go into that channel as soon as something changes even if it feels like a bit of a butterfly effect right i.e like it looks tiny here but somewhere else in the world like the you know butterfly kind of your wings have, you know, has caused a, a hurricane that's where a machine is really helpful right so like that's probably as i said like part of it is like just that human process and discipline and the other part is having visibility into all your channels, like before you even start adding you know, new channels. I think it's really good timing as well, because, you know, back in the day, well, when brands had more leverage over just doing Facebook ads, they had this, um, they didn't want to affect their brand perception, you know, and then they didn't want to sell on Amazon. They were worried of their brand perception or specific retail channels. But now you just see every single brand just listing on Amazon um, because the Facebook world has just become so hard. And in reality, they then they say, well, look, it's not the end of the world, actually. Like our brand hasn't really been damaged by being on Amazon. And that's because your shoppers are there. Um, and everyone has sort of come to realize that in the DVC world now. Totally. And I think like um, the two thoughts there, Ramon, like one is I think we are finally getting to a point where omnichannel is like it is now omnichannel, i.e. like the initial premise of omnichannel was always like, can I connect with my you know, prospective customer or customer in whatever channel that they are already in? And I, can I keep that consistent across my whole business, right? I finally think we are at a point where um, like even practically for many, like for large brands, like you can buy from them and like multiple different ways, right? From you know, their own flagship stores to kind of a, a reseller of theirs to an online kind of you know, uh, medium, whether their own store or some kind of social channel. So I think we're finally with Om Omnichannel. I'll have maybe slightly more provocative um, kind of thought that I will share there. Just before we were recording this, I was chatting to a fellow founder of mine, um, and both of us said the same thing, and a fellow software founder, um, and both of us were saying the same thing about how we are acquiring customers, where the phenomena is that 80% of our customers into our companies at this stage are coming from quote unquote dark social, i.e. like very hard to kind of attribute like where they came from, where we kind of as a brand interacted with them. And I would kind of proffer that generally what we see because we're talking about kind of your software founders like if we say that they are generally early adopters and like trends emerge there kind of sooner i suspect the same is going to be true for consumer brands um in the next couple of years that 
the kind of the reason for why customer purchase from you like will be less known like you i don't think attribution will matter as much being everywhere or in as many places as possible will matter more than what direct attribution will matter and Adi, the the other question that i'd have um on the back of that right is i think one of the perspectives that you have as a software founder that works with a lot of brands works with um you know con con connecting a bunch of data is that you have an insight into what some of the better brands are doing what like when you guys get in there you know you see what a good tech stack like looks like versus a bad tech stack and you understand the importance of connecting all these data sources so from your guys's experience working across some of your different brands what are some of the tools in the tech stacks that um you know the most successful brands are using and you know maybe what are some that you think are maybe a little antiquated that have opportunity to be replaced disrupted that sort of thing oh that's a that's a good question um i mean anything that leads to a spreadsheet i would say is is antiquated at this stage right um like if a spreadsheet is part of like a significant part of any tools kind of workflow still like before or after you use the tool um in that kind of workflow sequentially like i i would call that out i don't think though that the tools are that antiquated kind of like, like i would call out i mean i I can tell you that I think NetSuite is antiquated, right? I can tell you that, like, Cogsy, like, when I pitch investors, I tell them, you know, Cogsy is the NetSuite killer, and we will build the kind of the, the modern, lightweight kind of you know, ERP, um, you know, for, for retail brands. And we will do that by integrating wherever kind of your SKU level data is, right? And we won't require, like, all these things that kind of NetSuite makes, makes you do. Because ultimately, NetSuite is a great, I think, financial tool. It's not a great operational tool. Like, it was not built for kind of operations as much as it was built for, for accounting, right? So, like, I, I, can, I can call that out. But I think, I think antiquated tools in the tech stack is, is moot. I think the, the biggest opportunity for brands is actually getting tools in there, right? And this is not just a pitch for, for, for Cogsy, right? Like, Cogsy is not a perfect fit for every single brand. But actually getting a, a tool in there to automate some things, to kind of you know, really optimize for things that machines do well, i.e. it's always connected, like, never kind of you know, miscalculates anything, assuming there's no bugs in the code, etc. Like, those tools, I think, are important. I would look at those things, right? In the same way that kind of the brands have been thinking about marketing. And then crucially, I think, you know, more directly, Blaine, answering your question about the what we see kind of you know, with the brands that are winning, the brands that are winning, like, truly understands their data. And what I mean to truly understand is they understand where the data is coming from. They understand how those kind of the systems in place maybe transforms or interprets the data, right? And they ultimately kind of have a higher understanding of what any kind of your derivative insight is, right? So again, like for Cogsy, as I mentioned, um, we're not the system of record for any data source except for the derivatives that we create. Like say, for example, on a kind of a demand planning or a forecast on your side. For the rest of it, if the brand is not does not understand how the systems were connected, how they're piping in, like sales information into a, an you know, ERP, for example, like I, I would argue that that's moot, right? So like really getting that clarity on how data kind of flows and what it actually means throughout their tech stack. Like, again, like that's a, a, a key differentiator between the brands that kind of you win and doesn't win. Um, and saying that, by the way, like I, like one of the kind of recent episodes, at least of the podcast that I listened to was, um, 
with Chelsea Schultz, I think, from Attitude, right? And she speaks about kind of exactly that, right? She speaks about like a like data overload, which is something that I agree with, with her you know, with her on. Um, but then she speaks about that clarity around kind of data, right? And the systems involved, and like if you can't get to that and you can't sanitize the data, everything you do subsequently again is probably not as valuable. Yeah, and that it's so important to get right right from the onset. And I think one of the things you pointed out, you called out earlier in the episode, was the fact that this is something that's foundational. So you want to the earlier you can get it right, and the earlier you can actually have the the right strategy in place. Because now we know if you're launching a brand, it's a question of time before you go multi-channel. It's a question of time before you have different data sources in different places. So rather than just stumble through it, it's something that you should really give a lot of time and thought to for your specific brand as you set up and give yourself a good foundation to uh, to scale once you ultimately get there. Exactly. Cool. So as we kind of wrap up here, I just want to know what's on, what are some of the things that you're most excited to build with Cogsy in the next, uh, you know, the next year? What does the roadmap look like? Who are some of the brands that you're working with that you're really excited to solve more problems for? And what are some of those problems and opportunities that you're going after really hard in terms of productizing in the, in the new year? Yeah. So, um, I can, I can always call out, um, you know, Caraway, they're, um, a significant brand. One of our early customers, like they've been working very closely with Mark Riskovitz there, who is the, um, the VP of operations now. Um, and what's fascinating, by the way, is like, I, I've learned, like Mark is such a fascinating character in the way that he is, he's managed to, and again, like I've got some benefit of hindsight here, but he managed to, if I look at their systems at least and how they architected it, he implemented many things within their business way before they actually kind of, you truly needed it. And I like, I highly doubt that they would have been able to scale as they would have if they didn't do that, right? So like, I can always call that out. And um, like my segue from there would always be that, like I, I think for us, we've built the data layer and the kind of the reporting and all those things. But what we really want to get to is like, how do you actually take action like with that data, right? So in the simplest way, and like one of the things we built with with Caraway very early on, like you know, and pioneered this is around back orders. So you know, Cogsy today has a function where like if if your product is out of stock, we will calculate a dynamic and then kind of automatically updated next available shipping date for that product, and then display it on on the PDP, and that converts at a significantly higher rate than anything kind of else. So i.e. kind of you go on a wait list, um, you sell on pre-order, et cetera. Like having, having that transparency works. So like I'm fascinated by the things that like the actions that we can drive either on a merchandising side, like that's like I would put that in merchandising, maybe getting into bundles um, on the front end um, or on the back end, I mentioned kind of the integration we're doing with Smarter and playing into subscriptions because that you know, part of the product is probably looks more like kind of your, a marketing tool or that kind of overlap with marketing, right? Because part of our pitch for, for that you know, feature set is that it should drive subscription retention over time. So um, like the question that I would kind of you know, ask my team is like, are there other kind of your know, marketing data sources that we should kind of ingest um, to kind of overlay with the kind of the operational data that we already have to drive some of those actions. So like, I think like ultimately, again, like I think Chelsea, um, you know, had mentioned that as well. Like I, I personally believe that 
brands have more than enough data. Data is not the problem, right? Deriving insights from data is a problem. And then contextualizing the insight and getting it as close as possible to you know, an action that you can take based on that, that's even harder. And I think for, for Cogsy, if, like once we get to a point where we can ingest the data, deliver some insights and connect you, directly connect you with some actions, I will be a very, very, very chuffed founder. So I have a question for you on that, which is, you know, you've mentioned it's getting help with ingesting the data. You mentioned there's certain things you do that nobody else in the space is doing. As a listener, I'm like, oh my God, this is probably going to cost like 10 grand plus, but you actually are a self-serve, really affordable business model. So what was the logic behind that? And then how do you plan to actually help the brands at scale um, be able to actually ingest that data if you're not, you know, hands-on enterprise, um, white glove type of business model? Yeah, so um, I love the question, by the way, Ramon. Um, and I think this goes this goes counter to what many what many investors and founders and like the broader you know, software space would kind of generally believe, which is always like, you know, go up market, charge more, raise prices, that kind of thing. I think for a big part of um, me, at least, like I, there's a lot of the kind of the, the WordPress and the open source. DNA that's just with me as an entrepreneur, right? And I, like, uh, I, I, back then I learned a lot from Matt Mullenweg, right? Like one of the original founders of WordPress, now the CEO, founder of Automatic. Um, and like, how do you balance, um, you know, the commercial aspects of the business versus these more like open source, which is more of a philo philosophical kind of your model, right? So when I think about kind of pricing, um, I've always had a huge passion for democratizing really sophisticated kind of you know functionality and outcomes and do it in a way that's scalable to a bigger audience so i would rather us at this stage uh, you know figure out that part thereof um than try and you know work with every single hundred million dollar brand that we can get and um you know charge them you know 50 or 100k a year for that like i can also be honest that like probably one of my biggest learnings as an individual not even just as an entrepreneur is you ultimately like there's more than one way of living life and you ultimately need to find the ways um that kind of energizes you right they're like I, I i'm not yes there are some probably some absolute rights and wrongs like don't murder someone right but for the rest of the things in life like it is a choose your own adventure and i think i i know that i have no appetite to sell into the enterprise i have no like i i like i don't want 100k project right or co a contract a year like um like maybe Coggy does that eventually ramon like to your question like when i am like not in the business anymore right like maybe that changes in the future but that would be a stark um change or pivot away from the dna in the company like both for myself um as well as stefano my my co-founder um so as i said it's all about democratizing great tools yeah for sure i i totally agree i mean there's there's many ways to you know to build a business and you know you can make it if you want to sell into 100 grand it's a totally different lifestyle and business and dna of the business um you know a business i've been looking a lot, a lot recently is like monday.com how they've achieved such scale you could look at um you know uh sort of shopify compared to big commerce there's there's many ways to make it but i think this is a perfect segue into your book um life life 
life profitability, um, which uh, I want to dive into because clearly this this is sort of what what drove you to to writing this book. And I want to ask a question related to an Instagram post I saw about life profitability, which is a quote from Andrew Wilkinson uh, that says, I just want to wake up every day and not feel that I have to do anything that I don't want to do. And we really try to create an environment where employees have that same level of freedom. So can you talk to me more about that? And like, what is the DNA of life profitability? What drove you to writing this book? And, and what's the main message? Yeah, so um, the, the precursor to life profitability, at least, Ramon, was um, so with Convergio, my previous company, my team and I, uh, we got to a point where when we were talking about our, our culture and how we think, um, we would say we were a life and family first company. And what we meant, like the, the little blurb was always that um, said, we want to do fun, stimulating, profitable work. But the most meaningful experiences that we can have is probably outside of work with people that are not our, not our colleagues. And there was this just this acknowledgement, like I, I really dislike this idea of like your colleagues are like families, like no, I've got a real family, right? Like these things are different. I can be very close to my colleagues, but like the one is not the same, right? Um, and and again, like I, I have a dislike for that. The other thing that I have a dislike for in that kind of realm is like this idea of work-life balance, right? Which is like we propose that work and life are two different things, opposite ends of kind of the, the weighing scale. And like if the one can your tips, the other needs to lift, et cetera. And I just think that work is just part of life, right? Um, and there's other things that's that's important. So ultimately kind of where the, the short version of where I got to kind of with, with life profitability is really the evolution of kind of of that thinking. And the idea there is like, how can I structure my life in such a way that the things that I do is also profitable to the rest of my life? And I don't mean profitable, like my wife will tell you, like I find even when there's no like mention of like anything financial in a conversation I I will use a financial term in there that's just the way kind of my brain works but the idea there was like how can I structure my life so so that it, it creates energy it creates things like that I can reinvest into kind of other things right so um the the way I now talk about that is I think about a life portfolio right in the same way that you think about a stock portfolio and in the same way that you balance kind of investments in different stocks to get to whatever outcome you want like that's what you should be doing for for life and in my like for me for example like my life portfolio like definitely includes my work right but it also includes my family it includes um my thirst for learning right which is a kind of a soft skill like i like if i'm not learning enough um, within any time period, like I know I'm not happy, right? Um, it includes exercising. I know if I don't exercise, you know, mostly every day, like I'm probably going to be grumpy, right? Um, it includes being able to kind of geek out about wine every now and again. Like, so all of these kind of various different things, like that's again, like where I believe it's choose your own adventure. Like I don't, I, I don't believe that there's a blueprint. I believe that this is down to kind of every single person to, to figure it out. Um, but the idea there is just to start thinking about like, what creates kind of more value relative to the effort that you're putting into it? Um, and the last thought that I'll leave there is is not my own, but I'll shape that. Is there's a there's a quote from Henry Thoreau that says um, the cost of anything we do in life is just life itself. And I think that's often what we kind of neglect when we think about our daily lives, and we maybe don't go through it with some kind of element of mindfulness, but 
anything we do in life has a cost, even if it's just an opportunity cost, right? So like if that's the vector and that's a more negative vector than I necessarily like, I'm, I'm more glass kind of half full than glass half empty, um, you know, personally. But if, if that's the case, like, should I maybe, like to Andrew's point, right? Like, should I take a different job because I'm doing something I love, even though I'm paid less, right? What does that create? And what is it like? It obviously costs me, like financially, it costs me in the sense that I'm sacrificing salary, but what am I gaining? And then you're probably like, you're comparing apples versus pears. Like, th this is not easy kind of your math to do. I would just advocate that you at least have that conversation with yourself um, and you go through through that process to to create some better clarity and alignment and not just robot kind of your walk through through your life. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of a conversation. So Pharrell Williams is, is an investor in, in our business and I had a conversation with him about this of like, how do you do music, um, you know, TV stuff? How do you do movies? How do you do like have 10 different businesses and investing portfolio? And his answer was, I just work on things that don't feel like work to me that I would do anyways. Um, and that I, I think that's the only way to get through it. And then to also implement it into your, into your life, like work part of your life. The other side of the coin though, is sometimes things, the journey can be so, so rough and so hard that you then think that you're supposed to take the route of like what is hardest because it can't be that good and that easy. And so personally, so that's something I, I even battle with. Yeah. And like, I don't, um, when I speak about these things, Ramon, I definitely don't pretend to have perfected in my own life or have like at any one point in the past, like had any measure of perfection. Um, I also just think that, uh, you know, going through the exercise and thinking through it and trying to live your best life, be your whole self, like any word you want to use in this moment is important. I think, especially for any person that has any, any measure of professional ambition, like especially entrepreneurs, like we've been trained to believe that kind of there will be short-term kind of pain for long-term gain and i don't disagree with that like anything that's worthwhile like most things that are worthwhile in life requires an immense amount of kind of effort perseverance grit resilience etc like sacrifice yes but i don't think like again like i'm not as singular and i think that's a very risky way of saying i will sacrifice on all these other things in my life for the next x many years to hopefully achieve a certain outcome here and that's where you start listening to people that kind of successful people that will tell you, you know what? Yes, it was great making all that money. Didn't make me happy, right? Like, and I'm, I'm generalizing there, like, and I'm saying that from a privileged position. But I think the key is that you have to love the journey. And I think that's what kind of, in my words, what Pharrell said there, right? Like, as a first point, like, if you can love the journey, the outcome starts, the outcomes still matter, but they matter less. Like, it isn't a, a binary, like, win or lose is less the extent to which kind of the journey you ha already had in hindsight was was great yeah i was just gonna say i think that's super important for any entrepreneur to hear whatever field you're in whatever and not even just entrepreneurs anyone who's really thinking about their work life and how they approach approach their life right but some get, coming from someone who's been through it three times i know you know ramon and i are like two-time founders but it, it starts to become more and more clear in every step of the way you go like i i don't have my own family let yet you do and you 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 kind of are able to contextualize things in the in the broader um 
you know, perspective, which I think is super important. So anyway, Adi, we want to thank you so much for coming on the pod today, dropping all that knowledge, not just about Cogsy, what you're building, your experiences, but as well as life and how to live a fulfilling life. So that's amazing. And then for our listeners, where can they connect with you? Where can they find more about you personally, Cogsy, et cetera? Give, give a shout out to, to your, your socials and where we can find you. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So um, easiest is um, on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, where I'm just uh, at 80, 80 I, um, or my w- website, if you're more keen on the book, which is 80ii.me. And then Cogsy is just cogsy.com. Um, fiveletter.com uh, should be easy to find. Cool. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Adi. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.